Good. <laughs> I'm ABC4 Chief Meteorologist Jim. This is Brent Humphrey. This is Chris Burbank. This is Kim Fisher with Good For You Talk. I'm Tori Wilson, and you're listening. Hey, everybody, this is George Severson, news director at ABC4 Utah and CW30 and MeTV. You're listening to Old U Radio. Have a great day. Episode number 135 of Old Ute Radio. I'm Johnny McKeon. With me in studio, Sasha Bloom, Wayne Thompson Jr., and Brian Carlson. For those of you who don't know, Brian Carlson co-anchors the Good Morning Utah from 5 to 7 a.m. He's the announcer for Good Things Utah at 9 a.m., and he frequently reports for ABC4 Utah News at 4 p.m. Brian, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. You know, this is my first actual radio interview, radio experience. I mean, I've listened to radio. I've watched radio TV shows. So I'm actually really excited right now. I'm not allowed to tell you that, <laughs> right? Because like then I'm blowing my cover here. Yeah, yeah you break your character, man. You, yeah, yeah, you got to be professional at all times. But I'm excited about this. You know, I'm a big fan of the Dan Patrick show. It's a big radio show. You'll watch that. And so I, to be involved in this process and something that I really enjoy, I listen to the podcast actually on the way over here. Oh, really? So radio is part of my everyday. That's Even awesome. though I'm a TV guy. Really? So, so your colleague, Rick Aaron, hasn't invited you onto his jocularity podcast wow. i've seen the tweets but i've not been a part of the experience oh, that's so rude of him Meshed up, yeah, you man. should talk to his producer yeah. about there's a that. green eye yeah. of jealousy in the newsroom <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's gonna dominate radio and television now watch man. out <laughs> so so brian i i had the pleasure of working with you pretty closely for about a year and a half i glad i'm glad you refer to it as your pleasure because <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> that's not always how people construe the experience oh we- <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite things about you was you have the ability, so you do a lot of interviews during the 4 o'clock show, right. your ability to not only calm down the guests, but get them prepared, but also you don't lead into the conversation, because I know you don't like to reheat a conversation, like you, you like it to be fresh and normal. Yeah, I have this phrase, I don't talk about what you're going to talk about till you talk about it, to make everything natural in the moment. Yeah, that's something that I observed like from you early on, and I've I've also incorporated that kind of into my interview style as oh, cool. well. Now, did you learn that from experience, like like, or were you just is this something you've always been kind of good at? Well, I learned by a bad experience. You know, what happened was I'd go out to do a TV interview with somebody, and they'd be talking. We just kind of getting to know each other, and they were so likable, and they'd have so many great things to say. And then I turn the camera on, and they clam right up. I'm like, ah. Oh. I burned all the good questions and all the good answers in my pre-interview interview. So I made it a point from that point on to not talk about what I was going to talk about them, what I was there to talk about them with until we were ready to film. And so I tried to make the conversation about anything else so we could still have that warm-up conversation and we get used to each other. But I talk about where they went to the grocery store or where they went to high school or anything else so we can get used to each other. And then when we were ready for it, then they would have that natural experience because that natural reaction is, you can't beat that. No, you really and you can't. You can't go back and play it again because they won't say it the same way the second time. No, they'll be thinking about it or they'll, right. it'll be, be like manufactured. It was always, I always appreciated that you do that too because it also made mic checks really easy because you've got the guests talking so then Jeff in the back can get the levels <laughs> right. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you got something out of it. You know, you know we had something from this guy here, too, because like, this makes me think about remotes. Yeah. Like a, when you guys small, go out. Yeah, when we go out and do stuff, we usually have to like try and calm them down and be like, hey. And the nice thing is, as far as radio, we record ours. So we say it's live, but it's not really. Just, you know, cause Wait, FCC. this isn't happening now? <laughs> what, what are the people driving supposed to believe? <laughs> but that's what we have to do. We have to try and calm them down. I find myself talking them through stuff. But, you know, I think actually the, what you have just said is a great idea, though. 
Like, I'm going to have to try that because they honestly, if you keep them on the ball and stuff, like, and Sasha's out, you know, some of my remotes and stuff, too, that we do. And, yeah, wouldn't you say that's a good thing, though, to do is just to just catch them off guard with uh, questions? That's what you're supposed to do, sir. <laughs> but, dude, I, like, there's so many times I stick a mic like you do. You stick it in their face and, like, uh. <laughs> and there's no going back after that. Yeah. Yeah. See, I've only learned that from trial and error. Yeah. You know well, I mean? It's tougher for you because you do live TV too. Yeah, and so I can it's, see you. So you got to make sure you don't sweat when you do it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> those drips of sweat, and that's happened before where I have been sweating so profusely because I was either so hot, yeah. or so nervous, you know, that you can see it on my face. You know, you try to be able to act cool in the time, you know, but you know, people can see it. So you really got to be able to act as if. And if you can't act as if, you just try to be able to somehow find a way to get centered and then move forward. Wow. That's one of your great qualities is your energy that you bring every day. Like whether, oh, thank you. Whether it was uh, 7 o'clock in the winter and you're on some street, your energy was always there. If it's 4.30 in the morning, your energy's always there. I need to hang out with you guys more often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, need to, I need to go back and play this, this podcast in my car all the time. <laughs> you guys are too good. Is that a learned behavior too? Your energy or knowing uh, that you have to bring it? Or is that just part of your, your bubbly personality? I've, I'm the only person, well, I mean, the energy that I bring, just it's the only way I know how to do it. Yeah. You know, the Coming at you with excitement and energy is the only way I know how to function. I, I can't do it any other way. So I don't know where I picked that up from. I know my dad was a very demonstrative guy. Like, if you could see me right now on TV, if this was being broadcast on TV, I'm really much a hands talker. Yeah. That is naturally who I am. My dad was that way. So I picked that up from him. So it's not diet. It's not exercise. It's just urinate. Somehow in there, yeah. I've got an extra chip that just kind of has a screw loose that makes me a little bit more energetic than everybody else. He's perfect for top 40 radio. He's got a good voice. Right? You've yeah. got a good, have you, Does it work? I yeah. always thought my, it's too nasally. It's too nasally. <laughs> <laughs> so have you had any, you haven't had any experience with radio at all, even in like school or anything like that? Well, we had a slight experience at BYU. That's where I went to school. We had to do a couple of little, we call them naturals. Yeah. I think if that's correct, that term still applies where you'd have to record a story that we would do on television and then make a radio version for that. Mm. So I had that small radio experience. But beyond that, you're looking at it right now. What got you into all this? What, what got you to go to BYU and, and study journalism, all that? Well, it was, it's actually really interesting as because I was an art major really? through my uh, sophomore and freshman year at BYU. But... I had really I switched over my junior year to go into broadcasting, and I suppose what made me go into that really was back, goes back to high school. There was a day that I decided I wanted to be part of the. I don't know if you guys had this at your school, but we had video news. Yeah, mm. and I thought, oh, that'd be a lot of fun. Those guys seemed like they were just joking around. They actually did skits and stuff like that. I wanted to do that at my high school at Granger High School, but I thought I heard that Kearns High School had the best program in the state. Wow. So I thought, well, I got to do the best. So I went to Kearns and took a class over there. And Channel 2 at the time was doing a schools to careers program oh, with high yeah. school students. And they were encouraging people, hey, to get involved with like nursing. If you want to be a nurse, they would provide an opportunity for that. But they didn't have a flagship for their own station. You couldn't be in TV and learn as a high school student about going into television. So they decided to have a, their own show produced, anchored, written for, directed by high school students. So I tried out and got it. I was one of the first anchors for this. It was called Two New Spin, and we aired every Saturday morning. And so that was my yeah. got my first taste. I saw you. You, you didn't either. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> I swear on my life. I was going to say Saturday morning. I swear on my life. <laughs> I think he's making it up. So, he's making it up. You can tell him how big of a freaking media nerd I am. True. I'm a nerd. <laughs> no, we have I been geeking out here a little bit already this morning. I seriously am a geek. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to put the light on me, but I'm a nerd, dude. I, I, we could talk all sorts of stuff about this market. <laughs> was, it, about was your high school news good? Because when Johnny and I were up at Newsbreak under Craig Worth, it was horrendous. Every week, like, the shows rough. were bad. It was pretty rough. Oh, it was always rough. But Kearns yeah. was actually, real, well, at the time, all I knew was they had a set in a studio, and I didn't really get involved in the rest of the Kearns high school students' classes. I just had my one TV production class mm -hmm. there. But because of that, I got introduced to Steve Treceder, who is a, a legend in TV high school news in Utah. And Channel 2 had contacts from him, who people went through his program, went to work at Channel 2. So they contacted him first about this show. I got involved because Steve knew about it. 
auditioned and got it from there. So I got my feet wet at Channel 2. So I'd work Saturday morning. Well, it aired Saturday morning, but every week we'd tape something and I'd get to go do interviews with the jazz or something like that. And I thought, oh, this is a lot of fun. I'd love to do this. But I was an art student. Mm-hmm. And so I had a scholarship to BYU for art. And when I came back from my mission and started really getting into it, I thought, well, can I do this TV thing? Maybe I should try this out. And so I switched my junior year. BYU just happens to have a great animation program and a really, really good broadcasting program. And so it made it an easy transition for me to make that leap. You had no fear interviewing people? You weren't overthinking it? Like the first time when you were a high school student and you were on an anchor's desk, you didn't freeze up, you didn't have that? Because a lot of people do. Yeah, well, we had some of those experiences, but we were high school students talking to other high school type yeah. students. It wasn't like me and Carl Malone. I would have freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes. But we got to do things with the jazz. We got to do some of these. Just They had some. They gave us some sweet experiences there at Channel 2. And I just thought, hey, this is a lot of fun. I was so wrapped up in my own little ego about right. being on TV in on local television every Saturday that I was just too excited to be able to get nervous about it. Coming from an art background, did you see the artisanship involved with journalism, with running a camera, with telling a story? I think that's really helped me in my career. In fact, today I'm working on a story that's going to air hopefully this week, maybe next week. And I was sitting in the edit bay with the editor and we're going over shot by shot how the story is going to look. And so that art background tells me, no, this feels like it needs to go here. I need this to go here. You know, and I don't know whether or not, I mean, you're talking, Johnny, about earlier about that you enjoyed working with me. I don't know if that kind of um, presence over involved in every little nitty gritty aspect of news is enjoyable for everyone I work with, but I really like to get involved in every part of the process. So I was doing that with an editor today where we're going over the visuals of the story, whereas you might think that I'm, as a TV guy, I just come in and, and talk about it or show up, but. For me, I'm involved in the writing in far as involved in the video and all of it. Seems to me that when an on-air talent, television or radio, when they're involved with their producer, with their sales staff, it's a better world for everyone involved. Because it's one thing if I'm producing your sweeps package or if I'm producing Wayne's on-air segment, that it can become my vision. Like your story can become my vision. Yeah, it's your face and your words, but a producer can really take over and use their vision to tell your story. And so if you're there, it's your story. And I think that's a better way for everybody. What I've had to learn through sad experiences is that I can't be overbearing that way. It is my story, right? My face that goes on the news. But at the same time, there's a photographer shooting it. There's an editor working on it, a producer involved. And so I've learned that even though I want to be involved in all the nitty-gritty parts of it, that I have to make sure they feel as much ownership to it as I do, and then it's not just me barking orders at them. And so that's something, because I love and I'm so passionate about what I do for each day, I have to make sure that to let them have that same amount of passion as well. Otherwise, I'm just a dictator. Yeah. You know? So how do you handle the scrutiny of being in the public eye, of having your name on it, of having your face, having you be, you know, the face of this story? Like, how do you deal with that? I don't know if it's as glamorous as everyone thinks it's going to be. be you know, that, oh, it's me. Like, people recognize me or something like that. And, and sometimes that happens. I'll actually tell you, there was a time when uh, one of my first times I got recognized was at the grocery store buying milk at Walmart. And I was just picking out whatever it is I wanted to buy, and this guy's just staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what to think. I'm Sorry, like, sir. Who is this guy? <laughs> Like, like, does he nice know something guy. I don't know? And I, he didn't say a word. And so I just looked over at him. I go, can I help you? And he goes, you look thinner. Oh, <laughs> and I go, wow. what do you mean? He goes, you're on TV, right? And I go, yeah. He goes, you look thinner. And I go, on person or in TV? He goes, in person. I'm like, uh, thanks for watching. <laughs> I don't know how to handle uh, how, how do I say yeah, I didn't know what, what to say, what? you know, so... What I get most often as far as being involved in the public eye is people say, I'm sorry. Really? Yeah, they're like, I'll, someone else will have to tell them, oh, that's who he is. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't watch the news. I'm like, well, then don't, be, don't apologize to me. It doesn't hurt my feelings if you don't know who I am. But, you know, as far as being in the public eye, like, you have those moments where you get recognized or you don't get recognized. But uh, for me, like, it's, it doesn't feel like anything else but normal. 
like just going to work every day is just, this is what I do. So I know people watch it and I, I enjoy that people enjoy that. I'm hoping that they do, you know, but sometimes, you know, you, uh, you, you get people who meet you and it's really exciting. I can say that it's really exciting to be able to know someone else enjoys the work that we do. I remember there was a little kid once in an elementary school. We went and visited. I was out working on a story, and this little kid told his mom, he's 10 years old, he goes, that's Brian Carlson. And I thought, oh, that was, that was wow. so sweet to me. Wow. This little kid knew who I was, and I was just a reporter working an early, early morning shift, and you probably saw me two minutes out of the day, but that kid remembered who I was, and that really made my day. And you inspired them to you know, possibly go down that career route, though, too. Maybe. Like they, they may want to be a television personality themselves one day. And so that's for why watching you. It's so important every time I go out to make sure that I am nice and kind to everyone else that I meet because you never know who's watching sometimes. Like yeah. you never know who's in the milk section. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, if I'm a jerk, if I come off and I kind of pompous and walking around, then someone's going to notice that and that's going to get back to my reputation. So that's one of those things that. I have to constantly keep on guard about all the time because you never know which 10-year-old kid's going to be watching today. Well, your celebrity is different than a Kardashian or a funny guy in TV because your whole career is built on truth and factuality and being a watchdog for your community. Is there pressure with that? I mean, you definitely have pressure with that. Can you hear that in my voice that I responded there? (laughs) (laughs) Shut up, Blue. (laughs) But that's part of the idea is you have to get it right. Whatever we put out there, for the most part, I mean, on Good Things Utah, it's more about the people and the personalities than it is about the information necessarily. I mean, you still have to get it right because you're presenting people, hey, look at this product or look at this fun thing we found on the air today. But with the news, you do have to get everything correct. Everything that comes out of our mouth has to be right. And so I guess because I'm so used to the idea of behind the scenes, we, we go over for an hour or two hours ahead of the newscast to make sure that everything is correct and you trust the people who are working with you. So if everyone else is on board with that concept and you have a good track record of keeping things factual, then I don't have to stress about that as much, but it is part of something that we do every day. But it's beyond just your news studio. You can't flip someone off in a parking lot. You can't go on Twitter or Instagram and light somebody up because you're a news guy. Yeah, that'll get back to me somehow. Yeah. You know, so that's the reputation I have to decide for myself. Do I want to be known as someone who is hot-headed or someone who is going to take offense at something? So that's just something I guess that goes along with the territory. And since I enjoy being out in the public eye, even as a little kid, I always enjoyed being out in front of people. So I enjoy that aspect to it so that doesn't bug me or irritate me. Hopefully that helps me keep a cool head when someone, it makes me angry, but that's, do you find yourself getting angry? Like, cause I know it's high pressure. Like I, I've seen it. I've been there. Like, like there's a lot of pressure, like either deadlines or, you know, the, the teleprompter is going to go out like right before, you know, we go on air. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? I'd say I felt more pressure going out into the public eye when we were working as a reporter. So I'd work every day, the whole day as a reporter. And I'm working on that deadline where I'd have to go out and get a story, do an interview come back, write the story, and make the deadline. And sometimes for these people that I'm working with, you know, their day maybe goes and they come and go and, and uh, their deadline may be tomorrow or the next day. My deadline's in 20 minutes. So sometimes a little more abrupt with people than I, than I probably want to be. And hopefully that doesn't come off irritating for people. So I try again to be as kind as I can in those moments. But uh, that's the struggle right there it was more so that way when I was out working and the people under these horrendous deadlines that we as news people have to meet every single day. Now that I sit in the anchor chair, the only stress I feel is before the show and then making sure that whatever I'm saying in the moment works. Because I only have a couple minutes. I only have like one or two minutes to prepare for each moment. And so because of that, I don't have time to get irritated for the most part, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Do you, do you prefer being an anchor now as opposed to being like just a reporter? Or I do enjoy doing both. I mean, I've always wanted to reach the highest pinnacle of my potential. And in my business, that's sitting in the anchor chair. But, so I do enjoy being in that position where I get to be able to be in charge and tell you, here's what's happening for everything. Um, but there's those aspects. If I wasn't going out and working as a reporter then I'd be missing out on what's most important because the people 
all the people who are listening to this news or this newscast, <laughs> this, this show, right? You are what makes this engine run. You know, all and so for our TV viewers, that's the same way. I need to go out and find those stories that interest people, that people love to see. And if I can go out and meet people, that's going to help me become a better person, better anchor, more relatable, and it's going to be able to help people enjoy that product. I got into this business because I want to be able to make a difference for people, make their day a little brighter, give them the information that they need, but also somehow make them smile. And the only way I can do that is if I continually go out and meet people and tell their stories. So if I don't have that element to my day, then I'm missing something. So I do enjoy both of those things. How much uh, do you do you enjoy this transition that you've done from going from evening news to Good Morning Utah? Like, how has that been? I like it a lot, actually, because I'm not a very serious guy. As you kind of get the feeling here in the studio, like I like to have a lot of fun. Yeah. We smile a lot, you know. Yeah. And so the evening news is very buttoned up. If you watch it at home, mm. you'll notice that okay, everything. All right, we have to tell you about this guy who died and this fire that happened over here. And then you move to sports and weather, and then it's done, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But the morning news, it's so long, you get in there, and you have so much news to cover, and you have things that kind of happen on the fly, like breaking news will happen in the morning, and you'll have traffic you need to talk about, and there's no script for that. You have to just kind of come up with it on your own. And so it gives that flexibility to be able to have personality, and I really enjoy that, having that little moment to be able to let my muscles flex a little bit, to let you know where that energy comes from, and how excited I am to be a part of this process. And I hope that comes out in the newscast in the morning. Definitely. When, uh, when I first found out that you were transitioning to, to the morning show, I thought that was a really good fit for you with like your level of energy and kind of playfulness. Oh, thank you. Like I thought that was a, a very natural fit for you. I appreciate that. You know, yeah. I, I always kind of hope that, you know, it's funny and I probably shouldn't mention this, but I'm going to anyway, is Dan Evans at Fox 13. He's been on the air for a while. I remember in high school that I thought I want to have that job. Dan's job. And so now I'm Dan's uh, competition in the <laughs> yeah. morning. And that, that yeah. was, it feels so exciting to me to be able to, I've, I've actually got the job I wanted back in high school. And now the, one of the guys that I used to watch, you know, is the guy who I have to, people have to make a choice between me and him now. And that's kind of wow. weird for me, but it's kind of fun at the same time. Wow. Wow, that's cool. What about that when your really... alarm clock goes off at 3.20 in the morning? <laughs> earlier. Go <laughs> earlier. Oh, earlier. Yeah. Two. How do you deal with <laughs> 2 that? Two a.m. That's when I get up. <laughs> Two o'clock. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Uh, not well. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only part of the job that's difficult, I imagine. It is one of the the stresses of the job. Like I go to bed probably about six or seven o'clock at night, so I can get up at 2 a.m. So I can get up, get ready, be out the door, and be at work at about four. Because Mr. Severson, your boss, the news director, offered me a position on your team in the morning, and I scuffed at him. I said, you are out of your mind. <laughs> and you really have to be for yeah. this job yeah. <laughs> to accept that early, early morning call. It was like it was hard enough to get off work at 11 o'clock, because then you're going to bed at 2 in the morning or right. 3 in the morning. News is a wacky schedule. I don't know how you guys do it. Yeah, yeah. it's really just discipline. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you be on that early? You like, mean like mm. energetic, energetic? Like all of it, yeah. Like you're, you, like when you do it, you're firing on all cylinders. You're good to go. Like how do you do that so early? Uh, well, going to bed helps the <laughs> night before, <laughs> getting your sleep, and then uh, I try to stay hydrated as much as I can. Have a lot of water in the morning. You'd be surprised. People at home should try this. You should go drink a big glass of water at the start of your day and see how much difference that makes for you. Because that's what I do. I get wow. up, I have a big glass of water, and then go about whatever I'm doing. So that helps me. You'd be surprised at how much water will help you change your mood, too. Oh, my gosh. This needs to go. <laughs> you got this monster. This is, I live on this stuff. Maybe yeah. we should drink water. So, so tell me, uh, uh, <laughs> wow. so when you switch up from going from Good uh, Good Morning Utah to announcing for Good Things Utah, do you like? Do you kind of get a little looser? Or the tie you, comes off. Yeah. <laughs> I usually change. I have it like a wardrobe change, and the tie comes off. You and Curtis Ray, huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, what's funny is that on that show, you compare the news in the morning. You wear a tie, and you're presentable. You have fun, but it's even more so with Good Things Utah, with all the women. I realized quickly that I couldn't wear a tie for that show because they're, it's very relaxed. It's very casual, and I felt out of place. So I thought, okay, I've got the tie's got to come off. I got to unbutton an extra button <laughs> and for the ladies. And that's why I started. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> these hairs are self-grown. 
<laughs> you're not Brian Carlson. You're Brian Fantana then. <laughs> From Anchorman. There you 60 go. 60% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> so, so you realized you had to loosen up really quick. Yeah, and that's why I started wearing those colorful socks that everyone's wearing these days. Uh-huh, I got, I thought, yeah. if I could wear these black shoes with black socks, I'm going to be a stiff shirt in a sea of people <laughs> who are just having fun. So I thought, okay, I've got to loosen it up a little bit. Buy different colored shoes, buy different colored socks, and now that's kind of the thing I'm known for when people come visit us at the studio. Like, what socks are you wearing today? <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, I'm not wearing socks right now. So. So, so was it easier or harder to kind of loosen up and have the fun? Like, was, like, was, that, a difficulty, was that a difficult transition or... Uh, it could be for some, but for me, um, I, the energy comes with me. So I'm part of the package deal as far as I'm not all the package deal. I don't want that to come across as like an ego thing, but <laughs> my package that I present, right, as far as my skill set is I have energy and I try to be positive, you know, and bring passion to what I'm doing. And other people have other passions. And we had a political reporter, Chris Van Oker, who was in the market forever his passion was politics, and that came out for him. My passion is energy and having a smile on my face, and hopefully that comes across. I, I think it does. You definitely seem to be having a really good time doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, just being involved and getting a chance to interact with people is really what I enjoy doing the best. So do you have to surround yourself with high-energy, happy people, or can you have that surly guy in the room in your studio? You mean, like, do I have to have other people to feed off of to be able to have that energy, or can I be a lone wolf and have it on my own? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, sure, that works, too. Um, It's a little bit of both. Like, I have some of that naturally from my family upbringing, but I do feed off other people. Like, I think I work best when I'm around other people. Like, you know how some people get nervous about going up on stage? That's where I like to be. That's where I feel like I shine the best. You never seem like a nervous guy when you were on commercial or getting ready to make that hit. That surprises me, and I guess that's part of your professionalism, but it seems to me that anyone that's got an audience of 65,000 people every day who's judging you, who now can interact with you on Twitter and Instagram, I just don't quite understand that pressure that you guys have and your ability to deflect it so easily. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm not sure there's a response for that, but... I just try I just try and be myself as much as I possibly yeah. can. I do need to kind of feed off of that energy. The more people who have that positive energy, the better for me. But there is part of that who just comes naturally. So hopefully, you know, that uh, people enjoy that. Because I can't be any other way. I don't know how to be any other way. Is it hard for you to keep yourself in a smaller market like Salt Lake City? Like, do you have that constant desire of going to Chicago, New York, L.A., et cetera? I do have aspirations to be able to expand and grow my career. I always have. Even when I started this business, I was at BYU. I decided I want to be able to get into broadcasting. And after that, you go to a small market. And Salt Lake isn't small comparatively mm, right in now. the world of television news. You have to go to a very small town. And I don't know how many people lived in the town of Tri-Cities, Washington, but that was where I got my start. As far as the news world is concerned, there are 200 markets or more. And this was uh, on the smaller end of the scale, like the 100-plus area. And uh, there was a, a hardly any freeways in that town. You had you know, so many <laughs> restaurants. And we had the small little newscast, and that's where I cut my teeth. And after that, I, the only place I wanted to come back to was Salt Lake City. Because yeah, that this is where I'm from. This is my hometown, mm-hmm. and this is where I wanted to be. I guess the reason why I bring that up is I work. one of the companies I work for is the Pac-12 Network. And I just got offered a job to move to San Francisco and work at the Pac-12 compound. Do you want to make an announcement here? No. <laughs> oh, Spoiler alert. You, you, you better not be leaving, dude. That's but all I, wanna, I can say, The man. reason why I ask is because it's part of my brain is like, oh, my gosh, I can go to San Francisco. I can get a real pay, a bigger paycheck. I can be in a bigger market. But then I'm losing my safety net. I'm losing my friends. I'm losing part of my family. And so for you, who's certainly much higher up in that ladder, do you have to judge all those things when you think about, and I don't know if you've ever applied to other places, but I'm sure down the road you probably will. Like, what is it that says, this is a good place for me to go, let your fears go away and just enjoy the ride? I feel like that will come. I don't think that day has come yet. Like I said, um, this job was the job I wanted in high school, but I always wanted to I always kind of felt like there was something else that would be part of my world, part of my my life when I went to work each day. And I don't know what that is. 
to be honest with you. Maybe this is where I, I blaze this trail and do this for 20 years. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, doing, I always kind of felt like there was some type of show that I'd be involved in, and I haven't even figured that out in my head yet, and it's been brewing in there for more than 20 years now. Um, either it's a game show, talk show, could be a news show, just like- Oh, the price is right. I don't know. Oh, it could be easily. the next Ryan Seacrest. He really could I don't be. know. I don't know what that's going to be. Idol, you know, something. But I feel like something out there is going to finally call me, and I'll kind of glob onto that and then kind of hold to it. So- that could be this, you know, that could be right here and raising a family in Salt Lake City doing that. It uh, Maybe it's going somewhere and doing something else that doesn't exist yet. I don't know. Do you take your job as a job or as a career? Oh, it has to be a career. It has to be a career. Because I can't, I, can't, I can't just show up every day and think of it, this is as my job and I'm going to show up and do the work and get out. Because if I have that mentality, then I'm not going to put forth my best effort. And I'm shortchanging not only myself, but the people who I'm working for. And so if I have that kind of, you know, clock in, clock out mentality, then I'm not going to be happy as a person and the people around me aren't going to enjoy me either. When you were a younger kid and doing teleprompting and running a camera, whatever smaller parts of television you were doing, did you approach it as this isn't a job, this is my career, even though I'm making 11 bucks an hour or whatever it is, and I'm working 26 hours a week? Did you see yourself as, yeah, this is my career or was that my job? I was always impatient. Yeah. To be honest with you, yeah. I always thought, okay, I'm going to do this now because this is what we're supposed to do. I'm going to gain all this experience. I'm going to learn what they want me to learn here by doing this little job. Like I was the audio guy at, for BYU News. I remember that my sophomore year. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to be on the anchor desk. And you didn't have sophomores on the anchor desk. Mm. You only had the, the juniors or the seniors, maybe. You know, So I, I always kind of thought, and even when I was in Washington State, I always thought, okay, I'm going to be back in Salt Lake in six months. I waited three years before I got back to Utah. So I've always kind of looked forward. I kind of kept my eye on the horizon. And so that's why I still kind of are trying to figure out where does that horizon end. That makes sense to me. So in, in 2012, you won a regional Emmy for the story Spice in the City. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I've always wanted to hear that. So there was a night, I believe, in November of 2011 that uh, – I was working with police at the time, and part of one of the, my beats for the day was calling up uh, different police officers, and we decided that at the time, there was this, spice was a big thing. If you remember, it's, it's the chemical version of marijuana. It's more dangerous because you don't know what chemicals drug dealers are putting in there. It could do anything to your body. And this was passing through the country at the time, and Utah as well. And so I had got uh, one of my contacts from the police department had told me, okay, they want to go nab these smoke shops who are selling the stuff under the table. And so we asked him, well, which smoke shops are selling it under the table? So he gave me a list of places to go. And we thought as a news organization, it'd be fun to see if they could get, uh, we could get them to buy or sell to me. So we went out and did it. Now, there's a rule in news for television. It doesn't count unless you got it on tape. So I had to figure out a way how to be able to get a drug dealer to sell to me and get it on tape. So I had my cell phone with me at the time. And you know, we've all got a camera on our cell phone. So I would walk in pretending like I was on the phone when I had my camera video rolling and I would say, hold on a second. And I turn the phone and point the camera towards the dealer and, and then uh, I'd ask him, Hey, do you have any potpourri? That's the code word for the spice. Huh. And you know, some people kind of caught on to what I was doing, you know, and didn't sell to me, but there was one person who so I walk in, I'm on the phone and I'm pretending like I'm telling the person on the phone, okay, hold on a second. And I go, Hey, do you have any potpourri? Right. And they go, yeah, how much do you want? You know, and so I got the whole thing on tape. Right. And uh, they sell it to me and I go back and get it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just bought drugs. I just bought drugs. <laughs> What's my mom going to think? <laughs> so, <laughs> that wouldn't have even been my first thought. That's crazy. But yeah. yeah so so wow. I, just, I had these drugs in my hand. And I call back to the station and I go, OK, I did it. I got it on tape. And they go, OK, let's run. it. I go, no, we shouldn't do it. Don't run it tonight. We have to do all the, I want, there's more we can do with this, right? Because other than that, I mean, I, with the time crunch that the news is, we had an hour, maybe an hour and a half tops to get that on the air. And I, I thought there's more here than just that. So I talked to my police officer buddy and I said, okay, I want to show people what this experience was like and what really is going on. So over the next three or four months, we worked to make sure we had the stuff tested and confirmed that it was the real stuff. And we showed people what it was like for kids who were walking in, what police do in response. And we went with police on a raid to go nail that shop, 
right? So we were there when they went in with like all the, you know, when you see police pull in all fast like and they've got the guns drawn and everything else like that. We did that with them. So mm. we went from buying drugs undercover, showing people what problem persists for their teenage kids. This was the concern we had that these kids were buying this stuff at these smoke shops under the table. And so we showed people, this is the process. This is what it actually looks like when you do it. And then here's what police do to respond to it. And so over those three or four months, gathering all that video, those interviews, we put that together and showed it to people. And it was something that I hope, I imagine that the Emmy people thought, oh, that's interesting. And it stood out for some reason. I'm very grateful it did because it's the only Emmy I've ever won. <laughs> I've tried to get one since, and it's not quite as easy when you try it a second time. You try it the first time, and you go, oh, my gosh, that was easy. I'll have like five or six. It doesn't work that way. Oh, really? Yeah, so you really have to put your heart and soul into something. And so I've been working on that since then, trying to find another story that I can put my heart and soul into that people will resonate with. And so that worked for this particular case. So when you did the first, when you did the Spice story, did you feel like, oh, this could be Emmy? Like, did, did you think that? Like, like this could be good for Emmys or? I hadn't, that didn't cross my mind at all. I just thought whatever we have at the time, this video, it can be told in a better way. And so I begged them, don't make me do this. I want to hold on to this because we can do more with it and show people more about this process and what's happening with their kids, what police are trying to do and why and how dangerous this stuff is. And when we tested it, it came back with all these chemicals in it. Who knows what it would do to your body, right? And so mm -hmm. I think that came out in the story, which hopefully uh, resonated with people who watched it. So it was passion and a job well done that got you that Emmy. I'm, I'm assuming so. You know, <laughs> As I've judged uh, the Emmys for other markets since then, I've realized kind of how they decide those things, how they work. But the uh, I think that with that particular time, it was something that hadn't, you don't normally see. You don't normally see someone buying drugs undercover and what that actually looks like in the moment. And I think that gravitated with people. Wait, so go back. Well, you've studied like what what like what's Emmy award winning? Like yeah. what what in your opinion is Emmy award winning? Well, they'll tell you what they'll tell you what the criteria is. Yeah, you know, it's so you have to be you have to make sure that what you do is executed well. It has to be creative, and it has to be the content has to somehow resonate with you. And you'll watch with that with those glasses now on news and you'll see, oh, that they didn't execute that very well. Or the content of that story didn't really resonate with me or they weren't really that really creative. I've seen that a million times. And so you'll notice that that's those type of stories will resonate with you as the viewer. And I'm hoping there's a story that it, I was really touched by that um, my girlfriend, her uncle works with this program in the state that she told me about that uh, helps little kids who have anywhere from cerebral palsy to any type of physical limitation and they don't know how to move on their own and so what they do in the state is they adapt those little motorized cars for kids and then you know nearly there's a steering wheel and there's a lever for your feet and you push it and you go well they adapt those cars to the kids needs so if they don't have any motor skills with their arms or their legs they can hit it with their head and their shoulder hit the button and they can go and there's kids are learning how to move on their own for the first time and to see this experience where these kids are putting it together, if I do this, I can move, and they've never been able to do that before, a two- or three-year-old child, it's, it's so amazing to watch them. Some of these kids are bawling because they don't know what it feels like. Other kids are smiling and so excited. It's called Go Baby Go. It's with the state program, and uh, it's, it's so heartwarming to see these kids' response and then the parents' response to what their child is experiencing. I had to tell it. You know, so look, that story is already aired. We'll see if the Emmy people like that as well. But the, uh, those are the type of stories I want to continue to tell. When you ask me what's like, do I like being an anchor or a reporter? I want to go out and tell those stories that people love to see. You know, and we were sitting there doing this second story about uh, these Go Baby Go and these kids in these cars. All the people in the newsroom would stop by every once in a while and go, oh, that's a great story. They come back and watch it. You know? And hopefully people who saw that story air that night, it touched them as well. What are the stories that the community needs journalists to tell? We need to tell the hard stories that don't get told. Generational poverty, generational mm -hmm. drug abuse, stuff like that. Well, you need to know what's really happening in your community. Like we, for example, have been embroiled with that scandal with the Utah Attorney General's office. Sure. Mm -hmm. With Mark Jensen, the inmate, uh, and of course, John Swallow and Mark Shirtliff. If a journalist didn't exist to tell Mark's story... We wouldn't know that Mark Shirtliff and John Swallow are accused of these, you know, um, corruption and bribery and all these things. And this was 
allegedly going on in our highest executive office for you know police officers, police work, prosecutors, and all that stuff in the state of Utah. So that is a key story for us. If you have corruption in our state at a top level, you as a, someone who lives in Utah needs to know about that. So those stories need to be told. The stuff that I'm telling you about of uh, kids and cars is heartwarming, and I hope that you can that will help make a difference for you. In addition to those stories, we also need to tell stories that help people understand what's happening around them that they need to be aware of or beware of. And the uh, scandals like that are one of them. Do you worry about retaliation? Like if you're doing a story that paints a police department in a bad light or the attorney's general office in a bad light, is there a part of you that's like, oh, the Illuminati's going to get me or, you know, that kind of nonsense? seems to me that you walk a tight rope by interacting with the government and the community and, you know. It can sometimes. I've never really felt that there was an, uh, I had some kind of pushback on me specifically that I was going to be walking one of those lines that was really going to get me in trouble. I mean, there's been a couple of times where I've gone out to an area where someone was killed or murdered. And uh, I remember this one time there was this little kid who was 10 years old and looked at me with just eyes of daggers that we were there. You know, and he made a move to try and, you know, come up and punch me or something like that. Wow. He, his, his family, someone in his family was accused of shooting someone else. And this 10-year-old kid, who, he doesn't know how to process what's happening around him. All he knows is, is that what happened to his family, I'm there, no one wants us there, and I'm the cause of their problems. That's what he thought. Mm. You know, so there was that moment where he was just so upset at me, and I could see it, you know. Mm. Other than those, a moment like that and maybe a few other handful similar to them, I've never felt like I was been threatened or I was walking in sure. a line that was going to be dangerous for me. Do you have problems when you've seen dead bodies or horrific mm. crime scenes, car accidents, et cetera? I haven't. Yeah. Maybe I should more as a journalist, but there's an element of that you get used to, which is sad in our business. I remember the first month, I've been in this business for 10 years now, the first month uh, I saw, I knew someone had died in a, in a horrific murder, and uh, it really rocked me a lot. My, I had uh, someone in my family had committed suicide a few months previous to that, and I related to that person. I was talking with the family who had uh, were waiting to find out if their sister was alive or dead. And uh, it was hard for me as a journalist to go on the air that night and tell the story of this family who had just found out their sister had been murdered. Mm. And I almost, I almost cried on the air. You know, it was hard. And so there's an amount of professional distance that I have to keep so that I don't do that every time. Hopefully you understand that I, I am being authentic and I do empathize with each and every one of you when you have a story that I tell. We'll tell them over and over again every day. But yeah, there is a, you have to kind of build up a thick skin. And so that's what's interesting is when you go out to uh, these crime scenes and police officers, firefighters, or news people come out there and we're smiling and having a good time. It's not because we don't care, but we have to keep, that's our work area. That's our job place for the day. And so we have to keep a level of respect, but also a level of emotional distance so that we don't bring that home with oh. us every night. And how did, how did the, a couple, cause I, it, I've only seen from the radio side of things, and we're we're out and about doing stuff like this. But this shooting that happened on live TV a couple of months ago, oh yeah, I mean that must have just rocked the newsroom. Yeah, uh, when that reporter was out there on live television, I mean we found out abruptly because someone texted us the actual video without telling us what it was. That'll that, rock you. Yeah, and I I can't even tell you it affected my entire day, and I'm not even in television. So I can't even imagine being on the TV side and you know people that are out there and you go out there and stuff like, how did you guys deal with that? Well, it definitely brings it home. And when you saw that gunman shoot someone, shoot the reporter and the photographer on live television, that was hard to watch because I can tell you there have been many times where even though I never felt like my life was in danger, I have a little more thicker skin for that as a as a former missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and then a door-to-door salesman for three years after that. I've been in areas in, in the worst parts of, of America, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, in the worst parts where I saw dead bodies then too. And I developed that thick upper skin. So I never felt like when I was going out to these uh, television 
remote live shots in Salt Lake and in Washington State that I was my life was going to be in danger. But you do think about it. Yeah. You do wonder what's going to happen when you're out in necessarily a bad neighborhood and, and it's really dark late at night or early in the morning. So it's something that goes through your mind. And you just have to remember, okay, this particular experience was something isolated to that person and that station. Yeah. I'm not a risk every time I go out there. And that's what makes me feel at peace. Yeah. Yeah, that would be, I, I can't even imagine though. Man, I really, I mean, Sasha and I even, I think I talked to you about this. Just Yeah, I was, certainly did. It really messed with me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just from being in the broadcast realm of things, I just... I could put my my feet in that person's shoes, you know, for a little bit and feel like, wow. And it was all on the back of our minds doing, like, radio broadcast out at some car dealership. Well, it's a natural fear we all have. You know, if you go out in any area, you wonder, am I going to be safe? Is my family going to be safe? And the sad part is you watched it happen live, and a lot of us did. Yeah. You know, so... And I think that was the intent of that gunman is to be able to have that shock and awe. I'm going to do this and this is how I'm going to make sure to get my point across. And that's the sad part about this culture that seems to be kind of permissive, permissible now here. The in copycat world, yeah. This oh, copycat yeah. world and you have uh, this amount of domestic terrorism that we just had in San Bernardino where people just said, I'm, I'm going to do this today. You're going to have those Sandy Hook Elementary Schools. You're going to have those San Bernardino shootings that people are going to go out and make a statement. And then that's the risk that we run as news people is how much life do we want to give to that, to that event so that other people don't mimic that and continue to do and, and let it happen. I know you're not much of a beat reporter anymore, but would you want your photographer to carry a gun? Uh, I don't think it's necessary, at least not in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you're in New York City. Or covering riots or something. Covering mm. riots or something like that. When you go out and you watch what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, mm. and you're a reporter for CNN or any other major news organization in that environment, the police weren't safe in those environments. News people definitely were no exception to the rule. Why would they reverence the news more than the police department at that time? There are situations where you won't go. I mean, you have reporters who are embedded. You remember... Uh, Peter Jennings and other reporters who first got their start working in war-torn areas in the Middle East, right? And they wore flak jackets. They're out there with the troops, right? So there are times when you have to report in a dangerous situation. So you do need gunfire to go along with you. I mean, our Second Amendment is important. Yeah. So, and for moments like that, I just haven't experienced that yet. Randall Carlyle got his break covering riots and stuff like that. And he told us on our show about how scary it was to be in a riot as a newbie with a camera and they all hate you because you're media. Right. And I had that one experience with this 10-year-old kid. Imagine what yeah. that's like with a mob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing on everybody else. If CNN or the AP called you and said, we want you to become a war correspondent, would you do that? I don't know if that's the direction I'd want to go. For me, that's my personality doesn't fit into that motif. It'd be an amazing experience. I'd have to really give it some consideration because that takes you away from your family. You're constantly on traveling and the road and who knows how long in these countries and the danger you're presented in. So the, the opportunity would be amazing to me, but I'd have to really think about it because that's not necessarily the direction I want my career to go. One of the things that Kim Fisher, one of your colleagues, used to talk about is how grateful she was to get to work with charitable organizations. Are there any organizations that you work with or have a bond with? Make-A-Wish Foundation of Utah, for sure. For me, the, the thing that really excites me about working back for people, you heard that story I mentioned earlier about working with kids who have disabilities. Make-A-Wish helps kids every day of the week. They have, if I remember correctly, somewhere around 180 or so wishes they're trying to grant in Utah this year alone. And these are kids who are dying of... Uh, cancer, these kids who have all sorts of diseases that are either sometimes terminal or, or, and usually that's the case for these kids, and they try to make their day a, l- a little brighter. For me, I try to make everyone else's day watching the news a little brighter in the morning, so that just naturally resonates with me with Make-A-Wish Utah Foundation. They do great things for these kids every day of the week, and I try to help them as much as possible. I like it. Can your audience get involved with Make-A-Wish, or is that something the public can have access to. 
Oh, they can get involved for sure. I mean, they're definitely looking for volunteers. They're definitely looking for donations all the time to be able to make those wishes happen. And as you can imagine, 180 or so kids, this is their goal to help this year in Utah or more. You need an army of people to make those wishes happen and and a lot of money per wish to be able to make those kids if they want to go to Disney World or if there was a kid... Uh, Lucas Aguilar, I think, is one of the kids' names. So I went along with him, and he wanted to be a police officer for a day. He got to go in a helicopter ride with the Department of Public Safety. He worked with Salt Lake City police officers, learning how to be able to use their equipment. They let him kind of shoot one of the in a in a safe, very safe way. They let him shoot some of the airsoft rifles and other things. And then he went and saved Iron Man at, at Utah's Hogle Zoo. And so, and the governor made it Lucas Aguilar Day. And so that experience for this little kid who had cancer, I think it was lymphoma, if I'm not mistaken, that was his, that was his best day. And to be there with him and experience that along the way was so sweet to me as a reporter. And that's an experience that not everyone else gets to have, but I get to have that as a news person. And hopefully I can relay that and tell the story in the right way that helps you feel like you were there too. Is that heartbreaking for you? Well, it's hard to see those kids suffer. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know how that as a human being, you can't be touched by that when you see kids who are going through their chemo treatments every day. I remember there was a girl named Millie who passed away here in Utah. And a lot of people remember yeah. her. And uh, I remember visiting her in the hospital several times. And she had a spunk and a spark of energy with her. But there were days when you know, the chemo would take all her hair away. And she'd come back every couple months for more treatments. And so it was hard to see her come back and have some of those days. She was really excited. Some of those days, the chemo took a more of a toll on her. So I just wanted to make sure she had a bright day every day. Wow, that's amazing, Brian. So as, as we begin to wrap this up, there's just one other thing I wanted to know. Do you have any advice to journalists or young professionals or anyone that kind of wants to do what you do? If you're looking to going into this business and you really want to do it, I'd first say make sure that's what you want to do. And if that's the case, don't let anyone tell you different. Don't let anyone tell you you can't accomplish your dream because you'll face a lot of rejection in this business. The first job, it took me over a year to get a job in this business, getting a small market pay for like $18,000 a year, moving away from my home and from my family. And then trying to get back to Utah, I was even more competitive and more aggressive to get back here. And so I would, I would invite you to remember this phrase, the answer is always yes. And if someone tells you no, they're lying to you. So think about it in those terms that if you really want something, you can go out and get it. Don't accept no as an answer. If you really want it to happen, you can make it happen. 